Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is CN Lester. CN Lester is an academic, a writer, a musician, and a leading LGBTI activist. Co-founder of the UK's first national queer youth organization, they curate the trans art event Transpose for Barbican and work internationally as a trans and feminist educator and speaker. Their work has featured on the BBC Radio 3, BBC Radio 4, SBS, The Guardian, ABC, The Independent, Newsnight and at Sydney Opera House. A singer, songwriter and a classical performer, composer and researcher, Sien specialises in early and modern music, particularly by women composers. They've performed at the Barbican, Southbout Centre, Snape Maltings, the Royal Exchange, Fluid Festival and Queer Prides throughout Europe. They've released three independent crowdfunded albums, most recently in 2017, Come Home. Their first book, Trans Like Me, a collection of essays on gender, society, history and building better futures, which was published by Virago and was named as one of the three essential works on trans issues by none other than the New York Times. So welcome to our show, CN. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be asked to come and speak about my favourite books where I can just sort of tell people that, you know, you can do that thing where you corner someone at a party and say, oh my God, have you read this? <laughs> so I've been invited to do it. So that's really cool. That is the nicest uh, description I think of this podcast we've ever had. It, that is, And that is the idea behind it. It is about getting the wonderful Virago writers to kind of share what they love and what they want to kind of pass on to other people. So that is, uh, that's the aim of the game here today. But before we get on to those questions. I just want to talk a little bit briefly about um, your own book, Trans Like Me, and also a little bit about your um, your career, your incredible career as a singer, songwriter, and a classical performer, um, and the sort of academic side of that. But let's start with Trans Like Me, which is a really kind of fascinating book, and it's both deeply personal, but as I hoped I alluded to just now, it's also about society and the world and the way in which all of us engage with ideas about gender and feminism. And I found that when I got to the end of it, the lasting message that came across to me was your incredible kind of in-depth illustration that this kind of idea of a strict gender binary of male and female has really never been um, enough for many of us, whether that's the past, present or the future, and that there's so many more kind of ways we need to think about um, we need to think about ourselves. But I'd love to know, so where did you first get the idea for writing this book? Like what happened to kind of come and, you know, what, what sort of, obviously these are things that you're thinking about, you've got your personal experiences, but what made you think, I'm going to sit down and write this book? And when you were sitting down writing it, did you have a particular audience in mind or were you hoping that it really would speak, like I said, to such a broad um, a broad range of people. Um, I mean, I think it was a it was an idea that was a long time forming. So I was one of those kids that was on the early internet uh, back in the day where you sort of had like an Angel Fire website or a GeoCities website. So you know, I was there, fourteen years old, running my really crappy little websites. One was all about how much I loved 
Oscar Wilde and how, like, here are some Oscar Wilde facts. And one was uh, about Dostoevsky and here are some Dostoevsky facts. And I think... I sort of wish that internet still existed in a weird way because it sort of doesn't quite in the same way anymore, does it? No, and I I loved it. And I think that really got me into blogging quite early. So... You know, as I, I was, you know, I was a teenage activist. It sounds like some kind of terrible horror movie, but but as I started <laughs> working in sort of queer trans activism as a teenager, I started blogging about that as well um, for a variety of different sort of online queer sites. Um, and I took some some time off from all of that because of sort of personal reasons. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came back to to queer trans feminist activism. Uh, and sort of more community-engaged spaces. I was also doing my master's. I was thinking about the various different writing projects I had because I've been writing fiction for a long time, but none of it was really good enough to go anywhere. Um, and I think I th- I thought at first oh, I'm going to write a really academic book about about sort of trans issues, about gender, about philosophical concepts of a sex-gendered system, and it would have one of those really long titles with a, a colon in the middle that would. You know, um, <laughs> And that's what I thought it would be. But then I started blogging. Uh, again, you can you can tell that sort of, I think that was sort of 2009, 2010. And really started to see the impact that a more personal and conversational approach had on mm. these issues. Uh, and reaching out across divides and, and trying to get people to consider things in a new light. And that combined with more and more of the reading that I was doing on sort of trans lives, on, on gender, on feminism, by the time that I really was starting to put concrete ideas of what this book would be, it didn't feel like another academic title was was what was going to be most useful, not because there isn't obviously hum, you know, a tremendous use in academic writing. Mm. But at that point, in, in terms of mainstream publications of trans books, what I was primarily seeing was either a memoir format or you know, things like the Transgender Studies Reader, which absolutely amazing. And there are some amazing memoirs, you know, and I alluded to mm. them in my work, but but there didn't seem to be anything that was coming from an academic background, but maintaining a light and easy to read style. Um, and on a personal level, I didn't want to write a memoir and I don't want to write a memoir. I, I feel very, very protective of my private life while at the same time having learned through my blogging and my public speaking that conversational elements that build in life experiences mm. can really forge connections. So I think what I ended up coming to was this idea of could we get a book that felt like a series of conversations from someone who could then sort of point you towards the the, the research behind it yes. without it becoming sort of front and centre, a, a dense kind of text that people wouldn't be able to pick up if they had 15 minutes. So I remember when um, my agent and I sort of really worked with Virago on, on pitching this book and selling it, we said this has to be a book people can pick up on the bus journey. Mm. they've got 10 minutes between stations um, and they can just dip in and out and find something that will hopefully spark that kind of really interesting internal conversation that we have with nonfiction that we love or even nonfiction that infuriates us but at least gets us to to think things through in a slightly new slant well, I think you massively achieved that with the book because it's one, I mean, it's, it's you know, in one sense, it sounds um, it sounds like an odd thing to say, but it's very easy to read. Like you can just pick it up. And I mean, I read it sort of, you know, from start to finish, but I could imagine myself picking up various chapters or thinking of them more as kind of discrete essays and then going back to them later. Um, at the same time, you can kind of read the full thing. And each one left me with sort of not just... Um, it left me with other things I wanted to go and read afterwards and kind of engage with and think about. And it left me with thinking with other sort of questions that I wanted to then kind of think about and examine whether it's relation into my own life or kind of talk about with other people, which I think is quite a rare achievement for a book to be able to do that, but wear it all so lightly. So you really managed it incredibly well. Well, that's incredibly kind of you to say. So thank you. I, um, I always feel a bit of a fraud. In t- I mean, I'm an early career academic and I think there is that element you see it both, I think, in academia and and as a composer, I find it also where it can be hard to escape 
the constraint that we put on ourselves that we need to always be showing, look how clever I am, you know, mm. like look how clever I am. Can you see that I'm trying to write like Bart or I'm trying to write like Deleuze or, and I, I so didn't want to do that with this book. I, but I, it, I think it was a point of courage for me to almost step out of what would have been easier would have been to sort of, uh, play into a look how smart I am kind of yeah work. yeah and I think if you have that background as well of course like you're going to want to kind of do that and like you say there is obviously still so much scope for some kind of really intense and very rich very kind of heavy book that could be like this but that's that, this is not what it was and I guess that's you know like the the, the number of trans academic books that come out every single year which are just mind-blowingly good you know mm-hmm. there's so many and I love them um but I don't think that's that's not what I had to offer, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Um, so Translate Me came out in 2017, which mm-hmm. feels, partly because the pandemic obviously feels in a way like a million years ago, but obviously in other ways it feels incredibly recent. But mm-hmm. I think I was struck in particular, you know, we haven't got the whole um, episode to talk, we could kind of talk about this for, for hours and I don't want to do that, but I was really struck by one particular thing you wrote quite early on in it, where you said that it's so dangerous that so often trans people are only featured when being the trans is the story, right? That's what, you know, a lot of the mainstream media likes to um, always try and do with the situation. Mm-hmm. And I was really wondering whether you think, and this is what I mean by a very big question, but mm-hmm. do you think that much headway has been made in the years since you wrote this book? Um, oh. Honestly, I think it's gotten worse. I, right. When I was writing Trans Like Me, we were, we were in the beginning of a backlash. We are now yeah. in a really, really awful backlash, which, I mean, trans people are one target within this backlash, but we're, we're far from the only target. And I think, um, you know, I, we, could, we could spend the whole time sort of talking about this, but there has been a concerted push um, throughout Europe, uh, throughout North America, throughout many parts of South America, you know, there are many global elements to this push of demonizing what is called gender identity mm-hmm. uh, as this kind of flashpoint to push back against reproductive rights, to to push back against women's rights in general, to push back against any idea that actually maybe the gender binary isn't natural. Maybe the patriarchy isn't eternal. <laughs> maybe yeah. in fact these are constructs just as much as anything else and, and they're damaging constructs and we have the power to get rid of them. Um, and I think this backlash and the way which it plays out against trans people, I'm thinking specifically of UK media, is at the moment it is quite hard in some ways to find instances in uh, mainstream sort of coverage where we're not either part of this eternal trans debate, quote unquote, where mm. mostly people who aren't trans yelling um, about yeah. what they've made up, which really have no basis, in fact, whatsoever, or, you know, things which often feel quite tokenistic. So even if they're positive, and I am so glad there are more positive depictions out there, it can still feel a little bit like mm. we included a trans person, look, we've done something inclusive, we've done something progressive, yeah. well done. And it, it's you know it's it's definitely better than the alternative but it's not fully humanizing it's still mm. and it's i think lacks that essential sense of equality which brings us together you know it, it's not enough to be angels or demons you you mm. want people to, to have fully rounded characters and fully rounded presentations in the public sphere of course. I mean, how, again, probably it's a very large question to ask, but mm-hmm. how do you sort of keep going with your activism when you're faced by this? Because I think there's there's often the assumption that, you know, as history pushes forward, we're always making the kind of headway in terms of right, the civil, all sorts of civil rights, you know, human rights. And like you say, this doesn't seem to be the case. And at the moment, it, we're in a very sticky position. Um, and how do you sort of get up each morning and keep thinking, I've got to push forward? Because it must be exhausting in so many ways, like you say, to have people who are not trans people talking about trans people in such a sort of, um, it's such a horrific way a lot of the time, right? I mean, I think in many respects, the past couple of years, I hate to say it, but, you know, I, like many other people, have not gotten up in the morning feeling happy to to keep going. I think there's been a huge amount of despair and a real sense of, you know, what, what are we doing any of this for? Um, and at the same point, I am 
supremely privileged in my position as a trans person. I think the the simple fact that I had such a supportive and continue to have such a supportive family mm. has meant that other things that that I've had to face with, so discrimination in education, discrimination in the job market, having a, a family who've been there to support me emotionally, materially, financially, has enabled me to keep going. And and the fact that you know. I am extremely middle class. I have a lot of white privilege. It has helped me to buffer storms that otherwise I think I wouldn't have been able to. And I think there is that element of collective responsibility where we see that uh, it's something my therapist said, and I she's absolutely tremendous and I, I find her a huge inspiration not just in the psychological wisdom that that she supports me with but her experiences of fighting for a better world and she talks about the fact that you don't need hope to continue to work that it's possible to do the work when in despair the, wow. the emotional you know quality of our internal landscape is not the same as the necessity to keep doing the work mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that for me has been crucial um, because it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been great. I think something which also helps is trying very much to find those collective ways of working together. I think particularly, you know, the pandemic has been so supremely isolating for all of us. Yeah. And I, I can't think of a word. Maybe you can think of a word. It's not just isolating, but it's that way where everything becomes self-reflective. It's solipsistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think we can so fall into, you know, you, you read the news, it's terrible. You you look at what's happening to communities, it's terrible. You look at what's happening just on the street you're living in, it's terrible. And in that solipsistic moment, it can become, I have to fix it, and I can't fix it, therefore it is unfixable. And I feel so very lucky that I've been able to keep working with the Trans Advisory Group of the Good Law Project. That has been a tremendous um, source of strength. Um, especially, I think, looking at people who aren't trans, who are doing a huge amount of work there, and the fact that that is a project which is not only for trans people, but also attempting to represent and serve other marginalised communities, such as children who are in care and gypsy Roma traveller groups mm-hmm. who are being persecuted under new proposed laws. Uh, and I think coming back to starting up Transpose again and being in a position now with finally having um, faced my fears and gone for Arts Council funding and got it. Well done. <laughs> um, which means I've been able to to take a step back from trying to do everything myself um, and been able to bring in a new curator and the new curator could therefore in turn bring in a new director and a new team of artists and to watch those trans people, other trans people making just excellent art, just, you know, like offensively good art. Um, <laughs> the R&D session yesterday and I cried and I'm probably going to keep crying all the way through it, but I think it's actively trying to find those moments of collective work mm-hmm. and move away from that sense of, you know, this is mm-hmm. in a small box trying to save everything when, of course, you can't. And it's an illusion. Yeah, yeah. You can feel it quite badly. Well, sort of on that point a little bit, I did. I'm really fascinated to know how you. I mean, how do you balance? Because it sounds like activism-wise, you're spent so much time kind of working with other people. Um, so much of your kind of life is poured into that element, and it's really important. But how do you balance that with what you're doing in your music career as well? You know, you're a teacher, right, and a performer, and obviously you have academic. You know, you're also. Um, I, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong. But are you studying? Are you sort of so? Uh, well, I, I teach um, on a lovely freelance basis, which is entirely what I want. Um, <laughs> very lucky. Um, so I got my PhD. Uh, I can't time it. At the beginning of the pandemic, just before the pandemic, I passed my viva and did my correction. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Did That's my correction. So annoying because you weren't able to do any proper celebrating then. It's no celebrating whatsoever. Um, and uh, so I'm working on on turning, you know, the thesis into other things. Though because it was a performance and a written element, mm-hmm. it's getting turned into multiple uh, strands, including hopefully an opera um, as well oh, as wow. book chapters and, and article chapters. Um, and it means I am in the supremely enviable position, at least for me. I, I love academic research. I have no desire to have a full-time academic job because yeah. then I wouldn't be able to do my performing and my composing and my writing. Um, so I can go in and I get 
invited to guest lecture at various different universities and I go and guest lecture and then I come back and I do my own stuff and it's, it, it's really nice. <laughs> it sounds like a kind of lovely balance you've got together. So what was your, what was your PhD on? Specifically? Um, you know, it was on, it was a personal and uh, theoretical reappraisal of the Venetian composer Barbara Strozzi. So wow. I could talk for the whole time about Barbara Strozzi. So you're going to have to, you know. Tell me, tell me, as someone who knows nothing about this, and I am so bad on music, I'm sort of tone deaf and very ill-educated, um, Ill let's put it that way. But tell me three fascinating things about Barbara. Is it Strozzi? Okay. S-T-O-Z-I. She was a massively popular, very well-published uh, composer of vocal music uh, in the sort of mid-17th century, which is this very florid, elaborate style uh, that had a huge influence on opera and a huge influence on sort of the virtuoso voice. Um, she supported herself. I love this so much. Uh, she was... <laughs> she and her long-term partner lent each other money at various different points um, so at some points she supported him and at some points he seemed to have supported her but she raised four kids and looked after her parents uh, and managed to get off paying her taxes in one instance by wow. yeah I was quite impressed yeah um, but you know I think to do that in in mid-17th century Venice I, I not just that she's a genius composer and that her music is so good again to sing it is it's just heaven um, but that she puts so much care and attention into her publishing career mm. and in the ways in which she pursued success and that she made that success happen. I, I just, I love it. I want to reach back in time and say, can I buy you a drink? And also what's your, like, what's your advice? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how to live, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the, the way that her life and her legacy is understood it's, to work with that is almost like taking a masterclass in misogynistic framings of who gets to be a composer, who gets to be remembered, what is a woman in history, you know, who is she allowed to be? That to study Strozzi, you have to wade through so much bullshit. I mean, oh my God, uh, to the point where you can't quite believe that the, the the misinformation, the disinformation, the just lazy inaccuracies which abound about her life, you, you can't quite believe that people keep repeating them, and yet they do. And it's so fascinating to see the ways in which inaccuracies are reproduced so easily when they fit cultural narratives, and that right. truths um, are not reproduced because they upset cultural narratives. And I think that studying her life and her legacy and the reception of that um it made me so angry i mean I, so angry to the point that i had to include a chapter of autoethnography trying to deal with that so really? going, what, what is this yeah um, oh, how fascinating <laughs> and is and is this when you say there is a like potential books and chapters forthcoming are these going to be academic or non-academic um the two ones so far in the pipeline are academic the opera would be well an opera yeah uh, and i think from that we would be looking at doing some non-academic articles and wow. engagement as well i just she's amazing i just want everyone to to hum her tunes because they are catchy they are witty oh sorry well no this is good i'm when, when we finish this i'm gonna go i'm gonna go and do some googling i'm gonna find some music i'm gonna read about her you have sold me so that's perfect thank you so much brilliant I would love to keep talking about this. It sounds fascinating, but we have to move into our main questions, I'm afraid. So let's put um, put that on, on just to the side for a moment. Might come back to it later. But first up then, Cien, um, tell me about two books that are currently on your bedside table. Get into your recommendations for us. I have got... The first two things I was trying to work out, because obviously you think of things on your bedside table, and while there are some new books as well, there's also like a stack of really old, you know, the pages are coming out, have read them 10,000 times. Um, but those are often the more interesting ones in a way. They're the ones that are kind of more telling about who you're talking to, I think. They, well, in that case, those are all either all the old decks to watch out for, um, and like the old Firebrand editions, which I bought when I was a teenager, uh, and also a lot of Sherlock Holmes. 
Nice. Yeah. Okay. But then the the two things I've been reading, which have just not been sort of middle of the night, save me from insomnia books, uh, have been Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. And I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Kanto by Joelle Taylor, which is that new poetry collection. Mm. I've didn't really read Ursula K. Le Guin growing up, I think stupidly, because I, I had somehow got it in my head. I think I'd seen someone recommend uh, Left Hand of Darkness as like a trans book. Right. So as a teenager, I, I got it and I was like, yes, this book will tell me how to be trans. This will. And, and instead, it was this literary sci fi. I was like, what is this? I want this. <laughs> <laughs> the most disappointed moment with oh Ursula K. Le Guin. <laughs> yeah, and so that went back on the shelf. And then, you know, and I'd read little bits and pieces from her over the years, and actually a lot of her nonfiction and her advice on writing, her essays, and absolutely loved it. Mm. But it was only when the pandemic started, I was like, well, let's try this again. <laughs> okay, this is good. Try it, yeah, second um, time round. Yeah, Red Left Hand of Left Hand of Darkness had my head blown open. Um, you know, continued on to all her short stories, her, you know, her other adult big hitters like The Dispossessed, completely fell in love and realized I'd never read A Wizard of Earthsea or all the all the books in the Earthsea collection. Because as a kid, you know that stage you go through with siblings where even if you both really love the same thing, sometimes you have to pretend not to love the same thing because it's mm. like if you go to a restaurant and they order chips, you really want chips, but you can't have chips because they yep. have chips. So my brother loved Wizard of Earthsea and oh, wow. I just couldn't, you know, that was not a shared book uh, and I obstinately refused to read it. So now I'm reading it for the first time and I don't really know what to say apart from like a hill. I have many hills that I will die on, but I will happily die on the hill that Ursula K. Le Guin was robbed of a Nobel Prize. I just, it's offensive. Every time I remember that she didn't get a Nobel Prize, it yeah. makes me very angry. And I realize, obviously, it's not the be all and end all of determining an author's worth. I'm not trying to say that. But at the same point, no, but for some, there are certain people out there, like Ursula <laughs> K. Le Guin, who you just think you're at a, such a level and to have not been given it, it seems like a, you know, like a real... Just a real in the face. Really. Yes, yes. And, you know, I like Bob Dylan a great deal. Like, in some respects... But... <laughs> If you're going to give it to Bob Dylan and you didn't give it to either Leonard Cohen or Ursula K. Le Guin, then I have a, that's a very big problem with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And then Joelle Taylor's book. Um, I think we, we have the same literary agent. I have to say that just because I don't want to, to feel I'm being sneaky and underhand by not saying that. So I, I first saw her performing um, actually at the an event where I first met my editor at Virago in 2015, 2016, and was just blown away. Um, and I have been reading less poetry in the pandemic, I think, because I usually read poetry when I'm traveling or when I'm out of the house, because it, it feels easier to concentrate on, it feels easier to slip into that kind of liminal space. Um, so I'm trying to challenge myself to to read more poetry again. And I think I saw this book sort of, you know, sort of hitting, hitting sort of the award headlines and sort of all over Instagram. And I thought, oh, amazing. I love this work. You know, I, I love this poet. She's incredible. Um, and bought it as a treat to myself. And I'm finding it really fascinating as reading another queer person writing from a perspective which is in, in some ways really similar to mine and in some ways radically different. Mm -hmm. um, so to have this poetry collection with a landscape that encompasses, um, you know, so many places I've been and so many experiences I've had, and yet at the same point there's a dislocation in terms of age, there's a dislocation in terms of some specific experiences. So you, you sort of see yourself and then you're, you know, thrown out again. It, it's wonderful. And I think it, it fits so well in terms of the themes of the book about sort of difference and being different and yet being together to to being in this history, this historical moment, what gets left behind. It, I, I feel I'm not doing it a very good justice because I'm still in the middle of reading it. So at the moment, everything is very sort of flashes of words and flashes of images. Um, but I'm finding it not just obviously stunning language and, and, you know, quite jarring. And I mean that in the best possible way, sort of imagery and sort of psychological realizations, but there's something deeply personal about it, which I'm really enjoying. That's beautifully put, I think. And I love that idea of the way of, I mean, I think 
in many ways, isn't all great writing does that thing to you where you feel both kind of completely and utterly at home, but also they're in a kind of alien landscape where it flings you back and forth. And that's what creates the kind of wonderful feeling I think so many of us have when you come across writing that speaks to you for whatever reason it is. Um, mm. I don't think you could have put that, I don't think you could have put that better. So that's a brilliant recommendation. Can I just ask before we move on, I'm really interested this idea that you say that you read poetry often while you were traveling in the past, mm. and that, that sort of liminal space made it an easier read. So do you, what is it then at home? Would you read nonfiction novels? Like I love this idea of having different different sort of prose or, you know, I don't know, different styles and forms for different occasions even. Is that something that you, you tend to read oh, yeah. that way? I mean, I think, you know, for my work, I have to read so much nonfiction. Um, you know, I'm in the middle of researching my second nonfiction book at the moment, which was commissioned, actually commissioned at the beginning of the pandemic and has been delayed, obviously, um, because not having access to archives and not mm. having access to, to workspaces. Um, so there is always just a stack of reading on the go. Um, and it is primarily nonfiction, you know, it's often historical documents, um, you know, trying to work with primary sources and secondary sources. I find then with literature, I often need a, a clear space in my head to be able to access it. Um, so for me, the easiest time to read both novels and poetry is, you know, usually going on a holiday, getting absolutely cut off from the entire world. It's my favorite thing to just, you know, no one can reach me. Um, and then having two weeks of doing nothing but being in a space, however that is, whether that's kayaking or swimming or hiking and, and just reading and being physical and reading and being physical and eating amazing food and coming up with song lyrics. And I miss that a great deal. And I think that that element of being at home, I don't know if you find this, but I, I feel for so many freelancers, it's really hard to escape the fact you could be working. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, it's always there, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, and, and I find it hard to allow myself to to let go enough to read fiction or poetry when that little demon on my shoulder is sort of going. But you know, you've got these articles to read, and you've got these emails to. And read. they're just sat there as well, looking at you yeah. in the corner of the room, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, so you can't even escape if you want to. They're eyeing you up. No, I completely understand. I completely understand. Um, I'll show you back in just a moment. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to CN Lester about the joys of being able to just take a great break from the world, go on holiday, read some brilliant fiction, which is something that we haven't been able to do during the pandemic. Um, next up then, CN, can you tell me about a recent uh, film, podcast or TV show that's been making you think? <laughs> I felt bad for choosing this because it's not... Why? The, it, well, it's not a recent show. Oh, well, no, but let me just mean recently that you've been watching recently. Okay. That's fine, yeah. Um, well, I, again, the changes the pandemic has brought about, I... It's. Did I watch a lot of Netflix before? I'm not entirely sure that I did. I would, and I would watch, you know, I would watch series as a sort of, you know, joint enterprise, and, and I would often, you know, want to watch something that was really quite serious. Um, so things like Westworld or Mr. Robot, and I just haven't been able to cope. 
I do not want to watch anything painful yeah. <laughs> or that yeah. requires me to uh, engage with awful things in the world. So what I binge watched recently was all of Parks and Recreation and it hit a really strong nerve. And I think obviously the reason it will hit a really strong nerve and I'm, I will try not to rant too much, but I think the cruelty that has been on display since the pandemic started, it, obviously it's not that the world was an uncruel place before, you know, we knew this and marginalized people knew this. Additionally, I'm not trying to pretend that things were all rosy. Um, but it's been thrown into a real sharp relief, I think, since then. I'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just under the spotlight and the focus in a way that it perhaps wasn't before. I think just in the open the open disregard for fellow human beings' lives is something mm. which I've been really struggling with. The the sort of you know, the open calls of, you know, who effectively deserved to die from COVID and who didn't. And yeah. you know, who's it a tragedy for and who oh they had an underlying condition. It's not it's not that sad. They were just old, they were just disabled, you know, doesn't really matter. Um I and I've I've actually been really, really struggling with that. It's not been good for my mental health and it's not been good for my capacity to engage with the world um and that's why when i started watching parks and recreation i couldn't stop because yes it's silly and it's a light program and you know i'm sure there are many valid and serious criticisms you could make about whether it's whitewashing um you know forms of liberal governance and i i get that but also i really want to live in a world where leslie nope runs more things like, I just really needed to watch something which focused on people trying their best. It shouldn't be so shocking, but it's shocking that a show that puts kindness front and centre in a main character is so shocking, right? Like, mm. it's hard, even while you're talking about it just now, I'm thinking, you know, I haven't watched it for a while. I've watched it a few years ago. And I remember, you know, exactly the same as you. It's kind of light, it's frothy, but it was always the kind of show that just, you know, you, you watch an episode... And you leave feeling good for mm. that kind of five minutes or so. You're feeling good because ultimately it's, you know, it's fun and it's about kind people doing kind things for each other. And that is something that we really don't see a lot of in this day and age, it seems to me. Mm. So I can completely see why you'd want to watch more of it. And there should be more shows about kindness, shouldn't there, really? Oh, well, and I think as well, maybe again, that, you know, I, I thinking of people I know, people I've worked with, people, you know, who are in not just my friendship groups, but extended friendships groups, who are so kind. You know, yeah. I think yeah. I, I played uh, Happy Valley Pride, which is Hebden Bridges Pride Festival um, last summer. And it was just everyone I met there was kind. But why is it then that we do have that also, at least in a lot of popular culture, it seems that that is the... That is the impression that if you ha if you write characters who are kind, they have to come off as like slightly sort of foolish or naive in one way. And actually what we're always interested in are the more venial, the more evil people. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's a sort of, I don't know, it's a it's a really odd situation we seem to have got ourselves into. Mm. And I, 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 one, I think it's untrue. And, you know, oh, God. I mean, sorry, I will try not to rant. I really will try not to rant. <laughs> rant away, please. But then we end up in a situation where you have people like forgive me for bringing the name up but Dominic Cummings who you know just because you are cynical and hard-hearted doesn't make you smart mm. And, mm. and that is something I really struggle with with this sort of pretense of intelligence being paraded by people who are just being shitty to other human beings and somehow thinks that confers upon them a level of intellectual sophistication yeah mm. yeah Oh my goodness! Like, oh, if there was a lesbian Leslie Nope somewhere in number ten right now, right? <laughs> oh God, and just you know, I think all the characters, you know, it's a comedy that that cares about the people in it, and I, you know, I really needed that, and I, I need that in my own life, and I miss that from people in my own life because you know, I know a lot of people who are in many ways quite similar to Leslie Nope, and yeah, I think maybe some of us all have, you know, that desire to save the world by doing maybe a bit more research and printing it all out and putting it in a form <laughs> <laughs> like I love that and I I just yeah I, I oh, found it's it wonderful really and it's left a hole in my heart because I need well, to something else to watch <laughs> you could I was gonna say you either go straight back to the beginning or you find something else but you know there's got to you're making me want to rewatch it so it's been a while now so I think this evening I might settle down with a few episodes of Parks and Rec to make myself feel better <laughs> Um, okay, so for something maybe slightly different, uh, up next, can you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way? 
Yes. So I'm using the book as a kind of uh, linchpin here, but but actually the, the, the writer, Molly Smith, one of the writers, Juno Mac and Molly Smith, um, let me find the full title on my Kindle, otherwise I will forget it, because the first, it's Revolting Prostitutes, The Fight for Sex Workers' Rights. And I'm trying to think of when I first started following Molly Smith on Twitter, and I can't exactly think of when that was, but I think it was around the time where sort of I as a I as a feminist, from my background and, and sort of from my friendship circles, that I had not known anyone who openly sort of had talked about either being a sex worker or, or sort of currently uh, you know, whether in the past having been a sex worker or currently being a sex worker. Mm. And when I started becoming more involved again in sort of queer, especially trans spaces, um, in, in sort of communities and, and with community work and activist work and sort of artistic work, obviously then I met a lot of people who were sex workers or who had been sex workers. And I think it was a real learning experience for me. And Molly Smith's writing really was a huge part of that where I thought, I think, that I had unlearned a lot of some of the very unhelpful ways of thinking about what knowledge was um, that I'd picked up sort of within schooling system, within university systems, and I hadn't. And what I mean by that, I think particularly is that style of, again, I was thinking, if you are clever enough with a capital C, and if someone has approved you as clever, that you can work out any social situation, any philosophical situation, simply by kind of staring at it long enough and applying mm. as much logic as you can, and by being quote-unquote rational about it. Um, and I think because it hadn't ever been a part of my sort of personal life, it was very easy. I remember sort of being 18 or 19 and, and reading sort of things by feminists about sex workers that were clearly like, well, you know, we, we feel terribly for women who are mistreated, but also if we have more police officers, that will make things better. And, you know, if they were outrageously misogynistic in their language, I could clearly tell that something was going on. But I did not have the sophistication to be able to go, hang on a second, would that actually make things better? I think it was quite easy to sort of nod long ago, oh, that's not something I have to worry about. And I think <sighs> reaching a point instead of learning where you think, oh, wait, <laughs> I don't have the experiences to know exactly what's going on here. Also, wait, my assumptions really, I, you know, I thought I'd gotten rid of that assumption, but like clearly I hadn't, clearly I hadn't, you know, really examined where I was getting my knowledge from or, or you know, what kind of lenses it was coming through. Um, it, it was, I think, quite a humbling experience and hopefully one that has made me a better thinker and a better researcher and a better writer. You know, just I think the point you realise that you had been part of a culture that was looking at sex work not as a, not as questions of workers' rights or human rights, but in this very odd category, where as as Mac and Smith point out, you know, people who aren't sex workers are treating sex workers as like a metaphorical site to have these big questions right. of you know what what does this mean and what does this say and completely ignoring the material realities. Of, of sex workers' lives, whether that's through immigration control, whether that's through being able to be protected from violent clients, whether that's being, you know, targeted by the police for abuse, which you have no legal recourse to solve because of the way the legal system is set up around prostitution. Um, I, I just completely, completely mind-opening um, and I really couldn't think how you could be part of a modern feminist movement without... I mean, reading this book in particular, but but I think sort of broadening that scope to thinking just how limited your viewpoint might be mm. and just how much you need to centre other people's knowledge, that it, it's not a failure to, to not be capable, quote-unquote, of, of universalising everybody else's experience because nobody can do that. And yet we still live in, I think, in a society where it's expected that maybe you should be able to. You know, you can write a newspaper column despite knowing nothing about it because you are somehow smart and insightful, so you'll come up with a good answer. 
and you probably won't. You'll probably just make it worse and probably just rehash something that you read someone else write who was writing it based on someone else, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, it's something you see as a trans person all the time. I think I refer to it in, in trans like me as almost like this chimerical, you know, people are not writing about trans people anymore, cis people. They are writing about this trans person they've created yeah. in their own imagination. Um, and, and they use, instead of the truth as their basis, they use the writings of other cis people writing about something equally false. And I think it's so interesting to see that in so much discourse around sex work, you see exactly the same thing, that there's nothing here about real human beings whose human rights are being threatened and impinged at every turn, who are fighting for, again, very basic human rights, mm. yet whose words and lives and experiences are being treated either as irrelevant or non nonsensical or they don't exist or they can be overlaid with these sort of mythical fantasy figures instead. It, it's mm. brilliant work. And also, I mean, just on a level, so as a nonfiction writer, it does the thing that exceptional nonfiction does, nonfiction writing does, and in, in you pick it up, you can't put it down. It just pulls okay. you right along. So, yes. Really gripping, gripping in that sense. Yeah. Are you, it seems to me, I mean, from hearing you talk about that, um, it strikes me that you seem like you're someone who's very open to learning about new ways of being in the world and other people's ways of being. I guess I'm thinking in particular, I, there was another, there's a great line in your book where you say that feminisms are ever-changing living philosophies and movements. And in one sense, I kind of read that and I thought, well, of course they are, you know, they're talking complete sense. But the other, then I sort of went back to it and started thinking, but there's so many people who seem to talk about feminism as if it is this one very strict unchanging thing and that you either are a feminist or you are not a feminist right and you know the way and I just think that you need it strikes me as well the more of these interviews I do with people the more people guests we have on this podcast this question is so fascinating in particular because when I ask guests to come up with a book that's made them think about feminism in a new way the kind of the stretch and breadth of people's you know responses to that is fascinating and it shows that we need to kind of constantly be reading be thinking about new things and to be kind of opening our minds to other people's ways of being um and it seems that you are very good at doing that or you're open to doing that and always trying to do that do you think about it i, I mean I, I think about it a lot i think there are probably two elements um one i've been in therapy for most of my life um so as i, I talk about in my book and i'm not you know, I, I don't try and bring it up all the time in a kind of, oh, God, look at me. But I think, you know, <laughs> desperately trying to destigmatize things. You know, I had a breakdown when I was 13 years old, um, you know, eventually managed to get, not eventually, I mean, it was, it was quick enough, but there was a bad year of not having any care. Luckily managed to get some very good care um, sort of through the NHS when I was a teenager. But I think this experience of, you know, being bipolar, having OCD, at various points having dealt with kind of panic attacks and anxiety that would mean, you know, I couldn't leave the house or my OCD was so severe that I would be, you know, certainly before I was stably medicated, would definitely not feel, not always completely in control of what was going on. Um, and I think therapeutic models of engagement with the self when they are done well and they can be done so badly and there are so many people out there who pass themselves off as therapists who don't have any business being anywhere near vulnerable people but when it's done well I honestly think it's not just a, a good form of working with one's own mental illnesses in order to have the best quality of life possible but it is a phenomenal tool for thinking about thinking, for thinking about how you came into being as a person, how you continue to come into being all the time, what you're, you know, actively encouraging within yourself, what you're suppressing. I, I, I really, honestly, there you are. That's another hill I will die on. Is therapy for everybody? <laughs> just, <laughs> um, just because it's really helpful to know yourself and. Mm -hmm to know your biases and to know your limitations, the points that you hide from yourself, the points that you are ashamed of, you know, all those points that hurt are points you should look at. And, you know, I think for, for me in particular, I grew up 
you know, there were so many things that I wasn't good at and so many things that I was ashamed of and so many things where I was being bullied about that being very smart, you know, how I saw myself and, and, you know, it was something I was bullied for became a place to hide in. And it would have been so easy to become one of those people who sort of goes, well, actually, um, and talks down yeah. to and builds themselves this sad little box where you stifle your imagination, you stifle your capacity for intellectual growth because you're you're so invested in the idea of yourself as the smartest person in the room that you stop actually engaging with what intelligence is and could be mm. and I didn't want to end up like that and I could really see how that could have happened um, so I think there is that I think also working as a musician <sighs> again there's some really bad teaching in music and it's a lot to do with shame and perfectionism and you know if you're not the best quote unquote, then you can just die in a pit because frankly, you didn't make it. It's all your own fault. <laughs> You're not blessed by the gods. And we still have a lot of language in classical music of, oh, someone is divinely blessed. They are receiving. Wow. God. Yeah. There's, there's some real. That seems very. It, kind of, it's not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Even I know that. I know nothing about it. <laughs> but that doesn't seem right to me particularly because surely it's like, I mean, you know, yeah, I'm not saying I could uh, do anything because my complete lack of carrying a tune but you know like most things surely a lot of hard work and intelligence is you know that's useful right and you can get to brilliant things with that but but mostly in in music as both a student and as a teacher the most important thing you can do is fail mm. because that's what learning is and yeah. you know you know I, I i'd been a pianist from a young age and you know then then going into sort of singing professionally I just spent all my time failing and it was awful. And, you know, I was there thinking I'm going to be the best student ever. And my teacher's going to be so proud of me. And she's going to think, wow, Sian is so great. You know, all, all the little things you tell yourself. And instead you go there every single week and you get what 10% right. And the rest of it, you're making all these mistakes. And eventually you just get really used to it and mm -hmm. start to see how liberating that is. And then I think particularly when you start teaching people, children, but particularly adults who have moved away from music, usually because of shame, usually because of feeling they're not good enough, you realize just how incredible it is that we have these processes where you're not the best, you're not if we're thinking in terms of feminism, you're not a feminist or not a feminist. You are someone who is trying to yeah to understand and do the work because it's, yeah. it's not a you know essentialist category you know you can't cut someone in half and go oh yes the feminist, feminist through and through right <laughs> you know it's the work you do i yeah. honestly and it's the way you treat other people and i i think a lot of the problems we have come to you know certainly thinking of this entirely fake um feminist versus trans people which makes me so angry i can't even is this idea that there is some kind of an essentialist essence that can be feminist totally apart from from any work you put into any movements or any ways of being and it's yeah it's depressing <laughs> and yeah yeah no completely I mean I think that's a brilliant if anything that's a brilliant definition like you know being a feminist is about the work you do and it's about the conversations you listen to and it's about being open to hearing other people's points of view right in many ways and other people's ways of being maybe i'll keep coming back to it as, as you know being a musician is making music and it's so funny the number of people who say to me i'm not a musician and they'll play in a band and they'll sing in a choir i'm not a musician like what's a musician oh a musician is someone who's beethoven mm, i mean that's a pretty narrow field right like yeah but you know the musician is the person who's kind of perfect but yeah, musicians, they make music. And I guess in that same way, it's weird to see someone being like, well, I am a feminist, capital F. Yeah, yeah. But there are millions and billions of feminists out there, you know, but they don't need to have the capital F to make that so. Yes, the need for the capital F is something slightly different. Well, finally, let's bring this conversation to a close, I'm afraid, uh, even though I could keep talking for a very long time. But tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you do admire, because clearly they've done good work in their life. In terms of someone I admire, and I think admire hopefully in an active rather than a passive sense, insofar as trying to use that admiration, is Toni Morrison. And I mean, I, 
I, I've been struggling with that. You know, where do you start when when trying to discuss such a titan? Um, and, and you know, sort of trying to trying to think of you know how to talk about an admiration which in many respects feels so very personal. I almost I feel bashful trying to talk about um I mean obviously she she's an extraordinary extraordinary light to to so so many people. So I think it can feel weird to to try and describe that personally, but I think you know as as a as a writer I think I read Paradise when I was 16 years old. Um, and I think I was very much in that state. My friends and I were all very um, literary minded. And, uh, you know, one particular friend and I were trying to broaden the scope of what we were reading while we were also really trying to like read the greats, you know, mm. another capital G there. And I went to the bookstore and they had a selection of Nobel Prize winners. And I was like, oh, okay, I need to read the Nobel Prize winners. That's going to make me an amazing writer. I'm going to be so good. And I picked up Paradise and I took it home. And again, just one of those moments where you, your head just flies off and you just say, how? You know, how is someone capable of writing like this? And I, you know, I'd read, uh, you know, I think I've been reading a lot of Virginia Woolf, which I had loved. And the, you know, I think the the main writer who completely shaped my teens and, and continues, I think, to be the, the main inspiration for me in terms of fiction landscapes is Dostoevsky. But I didn't realize there were writers who were still living who could take on again quote the greats of the canon and just just blow them away um so, so you know everything i think you know i could spend ages talking about her, the poetry of her writing the psychological insight the the surgical precision and yet the the musical sort of symphonic elements of her work um, but I think maybe something I wanted to talk about here, just just briefly, in terms of admiration, not not just for for Morrison, the you know the the novelist, but but Morrison, the sort of the, the worker in in the world. I think the the more I found out about her, the fact that she had not just done the work for herself, but had lifted up so many writers that she had made space for writers that she had taken on you know, that racism of of the publishing industry, which is still with us, we still have tremendously, tremendously racist arts institutions in the UK mm. with this veneer of, of acceptability above in some instances, uh, that she did that work not just for herself, but for so many other people that she... she and the change that you could make as a creative, I think particularly, you know, thinking of that... Um, that terrible, terrible stereotype of, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you go and live in an ivory tower and, you know, it's all about being pure and untouched from the world. And instead here's someone just changing the world and, and mm -hmm. holding that power and making phenomenal changes. And I think then just a little point that really gets at me, you know, thinking that she was 39 when her, you know, her first novel was published and thinking, you know, we, we have this literary landscape where we still have all these things where we conflate emerging writer with young writer. Yeah, youth always, right? Oh, yeah, you know, sort of novelists under 35 and, you know, 30 under 30. And, oh, it's... Well, it's so reductive. And so, and you actually miss, you, you know, if you look beyond that, you realise there are so many, particularly women as well, who, mm -hmm. I'm not the first to mention this, but particularly women who have children, like often they don't start writing till later, for example, or there might be other reasons why you might not have had the privilege to be able to write your first kind of amazing book age 22. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons why it might be sort of, you know, particularly young white men who fall into that category, mm -hmm. let's say. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I, I have been so lucky to have been able to work with with so many trans people so many trans artists from so many different experiences you know over the past 10 years since I founded Transpose and some are young and some are old and some are already established and some are emerging 
but nobody's career has followed that very reductive, you know, like, oh, you know, here is a bright young man and look, this is his debut novel. And oh, it's amazing. He is going to be a great American novelist or the next great, you know, this, and everyone's art is richer for it. Hmm. And I'm sorry, sorry, I feel like I've gone all bashful. I know this sounds really stupid. <laughs> When I no, but it sounds like this is a very this is very personal. Um, you know, you obviously feel very personally about what it is about Morrison, both her writing, her being, everything about her that has sort of you know inspired and you know given you admiration, right? And yeah, I I, I think I just there are people there are people whose existence in the world just makes you want to be better. And and I don't mean I'm not saying that that was what she was aiming for or that was her job. That is not what I'm saying at all. I'm just thankful to have had a chance to read her words and thankful to exist in a world where her novels exist, but also the changes that she made in the world exist. And I think there is a duty that comes when we see other people's work to do what we can in turn. You know, we're always paying it forward. And there are so many people out there who show you what human beings can do. And 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 it is extraordinary what human beings can do. And I you know, as an as an artist, but as an editor, as a teacher, she just you know She is Tony Morrison. Let's leave it there. That there's nothing more you have you've put it no you've put it eloquently and elegantly and I think that's a perfect place to leave it. She is inspirational and she is the kind of person who wants uh who you know we all want to do better because of people like her in the world. So mm. brilliant. Thank you so much, CN. I really enjoyed this conversation. Really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad you came on the show. Um, thank you very much for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's brilliant guest, CN Lester. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.